0: we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. I'd like for you to go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, It's been a little time since we visited 1 Corinthians. And uh, so we'll just read a couple of verses in review and then come back to where we have left off. This is the 33rd message from the book of 1 Corinthians. And we have nearly come through the entire book. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 We'll begin reading in verse number one and is as is my habit, I can't keep up with my glasses and uh, so I'm hoping I can I can get through this. Sometimes you'll note I don't have my glasses on and I'm reading, that's because I have it in larger print on my iPad. Uh, but these verses that I'm going to read, I, I don't have in larger print on my iPad. So uh, you pray for me, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read verse number 1 through uh, verse 28. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me Was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose again from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, All things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use it in our lives as we consider this truth of the resurrection. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, earlier we looked at verses 1 through 11. That's been some weeks ago. And the Bible says that Paul, in his defense of this doctrine, of the resurrection in his presentation of the truth of the resurrection, which was under attack in Corinth. Paul tells us that the resurrection was a proven fact. It's a proven fact. He tells us of the witnesses of the resurrection. He speaks of the fact that uh, the message of the disciples those who had seen him and heard him uh, who had touched him who had felt him with their own hands had declared that Jesus Christ was risen notice again if you would in verse number five and that he was seen of Cephas that's Peter then of the twelve and after that he was a scene of above 500 brethren at once so there were many eyewitnesses to the resurrection, he said, the, "Whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep." After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and he says in verse eight, "And last of all, he was seen of me also as a one born out of due time." So he lays forward the evidence of the resurrection. And so if you would, if, you're, if you just want to get a grasp on this chapter and the flow of it, I think we can give you three headings. First of all, in verses 1 through 11, you have the proven truth of the resurrection. It's a proven truth. It's irrefutable. It's undeniable. There was no one who came forward in, in that day to say, wait a minute, this didn't happen because there were so many eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So we see the proven truth of it in verses 1 through 11. And then picking up there and moving forward in verses 12 through 19, we see this thought, and this will be our focus tonight the primary truth of the resurrection. The primary truth of the resurrection. What if the doctrine of the resurrection was denied in the church? Now, it is a proven fact. Paul has already laid that out for us. But in Corinth, as we're going to read, there were those who denied the resurrection. Now, look with me, if you would, again in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that is in the church, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, there were those who were teaching that uh, if, if, once you died, that was it. That was it. You went to the grave, and you ceased to exist. There are a lot of people who believe that today. And so he says, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there be no resurrection of the dead then is Christ not risen. In other words, if your uncle or your neighbor who knew Christ died and you claim that that was it, that he just ceased to exist. If that's really true, he says, if there be no resurrection of the dead, then he says this, then is Christ not risen. In other words, if we believe in the resurrection of Christ, it is a necessity that we also believe in the resurrection of the dead. Or else there's no purpose for his resurrection. so he says in verse 14, And if Christ be not risen... I want you to look at those words. If Christ be not risen... What he is going to give to us are the consequences of this dangerous error that had crept into the church, that there was no resurrection of the dead, that life just simply ended when one died here on earth. And so we're going to find that it is a primary truth. Now, we don't have time to look at this tonight, but I want to give you this thought. In verses 20 through 28, we have the powerful truth of the resurrection the powerful truth of the resurrection. What is the ramification of the, doctrine of, the resu- of the doctrine of the resurrection? We're going to look at the ramification of the denial of such a doctrine. Then we're going to look at the ramifications, the implications of the truth of it and in its power and what it means. And I think... We're going to be surprised and helped and encouraged by learning what it means. But we won't get to that this week. We're looking tonight at the primary truth of it. So let's consider some things. Uh, I, I want to give them to you in six headings. And uh, I hope you write them down. First of all, if there is no resurrection, then there is no purpose. Behind our preaching, there's no reason for us to preach. Now, who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to a group of people who have professed faith in Christ. And so he says to the church, you need to beware of this damnable doctrine that there is no resurrection. We're not just living for this world only. We are living uh, for the world to come. And if there is no resurrection, then you need to understand that our preaching is vain. That's what he says in verse 14. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. So therefore, thought number one, if Christ is not risen, there's no purpose for our preaching. There's no purpose behind it whatsoever. What is our message? Our message is the gospel. What does the gospel include? It includes the death of Christ. Why did Christ die? He died to make the atonement for our sin. Christ was buried and he rose again. It is through his resurrection, the power of his resurrection, and our faith in him that we share in his resurrection life. We were dead in the trespasses of, in our trespasses and sins, But when we receive Christ as Savior, the life of God is imparted to us. And that is an eternal life, one that goes beyond this world. And so our message is the message of the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ rose again. And he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, through this message ye are saved, by which also ye are saved, Our salvation depends upon the truth of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We cannot get rid of any of those doctrines. Doctrine is important for a church. It is important for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. It is important for us to be guided by the principles and truths of God's word. And so if Christ be not risen, there's no purpose to our preaching. Secondly, if Christ be not risen, there is no foundation for our faith. There's no foundation for our faith. Uh, Look again, if you would, in verse 14. If Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Now, having faith as a virtue does not bring salvation. There's a lot of discussion about faith today. I have faith. My faith is important to me. I couldn't get by without my faith. But faith in and of itself is no good unless there is an object to it. We have to have an anchor to our faith an object of our faith, and our faith is in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have put our faith in him, that is, in who he is and what he has done for us, his death on the cross to make the atonement for our sin and his resurrection to give us eternal life, if then we deny the resurrection, if we say there is no resurrection, then our faith is vain It's empty. It's futile. It's meaningless. So, if there be no resurrection, there is no foundation for our faith. Let me give you a third thought. If there be no resurrection, if Christ be not raised, then, thirdly, there is no truth to our testimony. There is no truth to our testimony. We can't sing about Calvary's love if there's no resurrection. There's no reason to preach the gospel. There's no reason to put faith in Christ if there's no resurrection and there's there's no truth to our testimony. Look in verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Paul said, I just named all the people who saw him. But if you're telling me there's no resurrection, then here's what you need to understand. That means we have all lied to you. We've all lied to you. If we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. So we need to understand the implications of this error, how dangerous it is. He says, There's no truth to our testimony. Let me give you a fourth thought here, and that is this. If Christ be not risen, then there is no substitute for our sin. There's no substitute for our sin. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. That means we're under the penalty of our sin. What is the penalty of our sin? It's death. Not just a physical death, but an eternal spiritual death separated from God for eternity in a place of torment. And so... The guilt of our sin has not been removed. The shame of our sin has not been removed. It has not been dealt with. There's been no payment for our sin if Christ is not raised. Let me give you a fifth thought. and That is this. If Christ be not risen, there is no deliverance from death. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not risen, then all of our loved ones who have died in faith in Christ have perished. They're in hell. That's what he says. If there's no resurrection, they're in hell. Let me give you a sixth and final consequence of this teaching verse 19 if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men most miserable there's no hope for our hurt if Christ be not risen there's no hope for our hurt Christianity therefore becomes just another religion just another set of of dogma that we can sort of live by, a course for us to walk through this life. But really, there's no hope for us. That's a pretty miserable religion, is it not? A Christless life, a life without hope, eternal and everlasting. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And so we see here the primary truth of the resurrection. It's undeniable, irrefutable, and it's indispensable. It's significant and it's important to us. And Paul is laying that out for us. Well, let's briefly try to consider then the next part the second part or actually the third as i gave you that outline earlier remember now the proven truth of the resurrection we looked at earlier verses 1 through 11 and now secondly in verses 12 through 19 uh, we have looked at uh, the primary truth of the resurrection but at least let's begin to look at in verses 20 through 28 the powerful truth of the resurrection the powerful truth of the resurrection. Let's look beginning in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. What does that mean? We know that Jesus Christ was not the first to rise from the dead. There were others in in the Old Testament who rose from the dead There are others after Christ in the New Testament who arose from the dead. But unlike Christ, all those who arose from the dead died again. Jesus Christ then, the Son of God, is the firstfruits of them that slept, meaning this, that he arose from the dead to die no more. He arose from the dead to die no more. He is the first fruits of them that slept. Now, in the book of Leviticus, uh, we have in chapter 23 something called the offering of the first fruits. And so when a, a farmer would plow his field, and sow the seed, and await the harvest, the first fruits of that harvest belonged to God. The first fruits that same principle is what we uh, what we take in in the practice of tithing the first fruits we don't give God the leftovers we give God the first fruits the tenth the tithe it doesn't belong to us it belongs to the Lord the tithe is to be brought into the storehouse the storehouse is is the local New Testament church. He said that my people will have bread. Bring it into the storehouse. So we tithe as a matter of conviction. We tithe to honor God. We give of the first fruits because it belongs to him. And we give with the expectation that beyond the first fruits, there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. So I can give to the Lord with the expectation that God is going to bless me if I'm obedient to him. There are all many, many promises in the Scripture of how God will honor those who honor him. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses bursting out with new wine, he says, if we'll honor the Lord with our substance and the first fruits of all Our increase. As God blesses me and I give to God, God's promise to bless me more. I do not withhold that, that belongs to Him. And Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. What does He present to the Father? He gave His life to the Father. He presents Himself to the Father. He is the first fruits of them that slept. And the expectation is, is that beyond the first fruits, there will be a harvest. You're looking at the harvest tonight. We are the harvest. We are the recipients of the blessings of his sacrifice. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Then look at verse 20. For since by man came death... By man came also the resurrection of the dead. Then he explains this in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So he says, by man came death. How did death come to us? Through Adam. God created Adam, placed him in the garden. God made a helpmeet for him, Eve. Eve. They sinned against God. They became sinners. They became spiritually dead. They bore children into this world who had physical life, but they did not have spiritual life. They were born in sin. And as a result of that sin, the wages of sin is death. That's the consequence of sin. And so death passed upon all men. For it is appointed unto men, Hebrews chapter 9 wants to die. So death has ruled and reigned. Death has been uh, the dilemma of all humanity because of the disobedience of Adam. But through the obedience of Christ, life is offered to all of us. So he says again, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We are all born in Adam, natural men, natural women, sinners against God, but in Christ, through the virtue and the power of the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit in us to impart life to us, we come into Christ, and in Christ shall all be made alive. And once we receive salvation, then that spiritual life that left Adam in the garden is imparted to us and we possess it forevermore. It is eternal life. We cannot lose it. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23, but every man in his order. There is an order to this resurrection. Christ the first fruits. Again, he is the one the first one to die and to rise again, to die no more. Then he says, afterward, they that are Christ's at His coming. When Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us this in First Thessalonians, we're not going to prevent those who are asleep, right? They're coming with Jesus. They're coming together with him. And we shall be caught up if we're alive when Christ comes. Uh, if we die before then, we're coming with Christ. But if we're alive on the earth, then we're going to be caught up together with them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. He said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So there's an order to the resurrection. Christ the firstfruits. Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. Verse 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put all rule and authority and power. Now, there's a second phase to the coming of Christ. The first phase is the rapture. He's calling the church out, right? Then we'll have the judgment seat of Christ, the seven-year tribulation period. That will be happening on earth. At the end of the seven-year tribulation period, the first three and a half years will be peace. The last three and a half years will be hell on earth like it's never been experienced in the history of the world. Not even close. At the end of the seven years, Jesus Christ is coming again, and all of the saints are coming with him. And Jesus Christ will establish his throne upon this earth. Now, we're talking here about the powerful truth of the resurrection. What is God doing through the resurrection? Is he simply raising dead people to life? Well, of course that's what he's doing, but that's just a part of what he's doing. He is restoring this earth back to the Father who created it. And part of that restoration is our salvation and our transformation, our glorification, and our ruling and reigning with him. And Jesus Christ will rule as David ruled upon the throne in Jerusalem. Jesus Christ will rule over the earth for a period of a thousand years. And we will rule and reign with him. We'll have positions in his government. But at the end of that thousand years, what do we know? What does the Bible tell us? There will be a rebellion. Now, rebellion will not be tolerated. Open rebellion will not be tolerated during that 1,000-year period. If you want to see a just government, a perfect government on this earth, just stick around for the millennial. The perfect king is coming. But even with a perfect king, there are men who will rebel against God. So when people complain and they say, well, you know, if God was righteous, he would do this. And if God was loving, he would do this. And why does God allow this to happen? And why does God allow that to happen? Well, there's coming a day when he's going to rule in perfect righteousness. And even though he's ruling in perfect righteousness on this earth, he rules in perfect righteousness now but he'll rule in perfect righteousness on this earth. And even as he does, there will still be, because of the sin in man, there will still be a rebellion against God. You see, God is bringing glory to himself. He's bringing glory to himself. He's revealing the depths and depravity of sin. But at the end of the thousand years, there's going to be one final rebellion, and that final rebellion will come to an end And the Bible says, then cometh the end, verse 24, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. There is no dominion that will come against Jesus. He will end it all, once and for all. Now, remember, Satan is bound during this thousand years. But at the end, at the end, he's released. And what does he do? He gathers up the rebels. He can find them. They're drawn to him and they rebel. And the word of his power overthrows them. So verse 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the father, when he should have put down all rule and all authority and power. That's that day. For he must reign, this is during the thousand years, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, therefore, that should be destroyed is death. Now, there will be people who live during the millennial kingdom. I'm not talking about the resurrected saints who come with Jesus, but people who are alive at the return of Christ, who survived the seven-year tribulation. There will be people born during that time, and many of those people, of course, will live and die they live and die. Now, it's interesting to think about their resurrection because if they have honored God, if they have received the king, then they'll have an instantaneous resurrection. And where is it that they will be? Most likely right here with us. And you say, well, did you hear about so-and-so? He died today. Well, I just saw him five minutes ago. (laughs) You see, at the end of that thousand years, there'll be no more death. That's the last enemy that should be destroyed. You see, the doctrine of, of the resurrection of Christ, it's a powerful truth. He's going to abolish death. Verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet but when he saith, All things are put under, his, under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. Speaking of, 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 uh, of Christ himself, Christ is under no authority. He is the leader, he is the king, he is the ruler. He, he has everything under his dominion except for the one which did put all things under him. Who is that? Who put all things under Christ? The Father. The Father did. Verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, that is Christ, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him that God may be all in all. What What is this speaking about? This is the complete and total restoration of a world wrecked and ruined by sin. Revelation chapter 5, John said, there was no man worthy to open the book. He said, I wept because there was no man worthy to open the book, to unloose the seals. But then there was one found worthy, right? Who was the one found worthy? Jesus, the lamb that was slain. He's worthy. And he took the book and he opened the seals. What is that speaking about? Well, when you buy a piece of property, you get a deed. The deed declares that you are the rightful owner. God, through his son, created the universe. The Lord Jesus spoke this universe into existence. He created all that is in this world. And he made man in his own image and breathed into man, into his nostrils, the breath of life. God made us in a perfect state. We were completely in control and under the dominion of God. But the devil came in and he deceived us and we sinned against God. We rebelled against God, and chaos ensued. And the deed to this world was placed in the hands of the devil. He usurped it from Adam. Remember, God gave Adam dominion. But Adam succumbed to the temptation of Satan. And the devil became, as he's referred to in the Scripture, the prince of this world or the god of this world. Who's in control of what's happening in this world today? Who's in control of the world? The devil. The spirit of this world is under the deception and the darkness and under the dominion of the devil. So Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross, shed his blood for us, made the payment of sin to redeem us from our sin and to deliver us from the captivity of the devil. For 2,000 years, the church has preached the message of the gospel. We have embraced the doctrine of the resurrection. And the Lord, through the resurrection, is restoring this earth to himself. The kingdoms of this world, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, have become the kingdoms of our Christ the kingdoms of Jesus and what does he do at the end he says father I'm giving it back to you I went into this dirty wicked world I paid the price I overcame the devil I put all the rebels under dominion I gave all who would uh, receive me an opportunity to come to me, and many have. I have defeated all of the foes. I have defeated death, and now things are back in order as they were in the beginning. That is the powerful truth of the resurrection. So when somebody denies that Christ arose, or someone denies that the saints of God are with him in heaven. They have denied an essential doctrine. It's a proven doctrine, verses 1 through 11. It's a primary doctrine, verses 12 through 19. It's a powerful doctrine, verses 20 through 28. Thank God for the resurrection thank god that we're going to be there to see jesus create a new heaven and a new earth and restore all things back to the father for the glory of god we get to witness it we're a part of it it's a wonderful story thank you for listening we pray that god has used his word to speak to you today if you'd like to learn more about tabernacle